0: This is a Valerie Moss Original Podcast.
1: Chapter 18 Times
2: The new year was well into February before Judith achieved her purpose of giving a party at Timberley, which should be something other than a family reunion. Twice, she had postponed her date, first during the holiday season, when an annoying irritation of her throat had prompted Dr. Caxton to prescribe a few days in bed. But I'm not sick, doctor. I feel
3: quite well, except for this choking sensation. It catches me suddenly without the slightest
2: warning.
1: A nervous paroxysm,
2: pronounced the doctor.
1: You probably talk too much.
2: From his quizzical expression, a facetious dig was indicated.
1: Public speakers frequently suffer that way.
2: But I'm not a public speaker. He blandly included school teachers in this occupational liability. I'm not teaching anymore. I only use my voice in conversation.
1: Try letting it rest for a day or so.
2: Was the crusty advice.
1: Go to bed. Give your entire body a rest. Don't talk except when necessary. And keep yourself isolated from the children until we see what this is.
3: You think it might be something contagious?
1: There's diphtheria over by Mullen's Mill.
2: He told her bluntly.
1: I knew there'd be an epidemic of some sort. Some hogs died of cholera there last fall and were allowed to rot unburied during that warm spell. Someday we'll have laws about things like that, but I shan't live long enough to see it.
2: Judith went to bed for a week and had a wonderful time reading, resting, and devising little services for Richard to perform. He was so sweet-tempered about waiting on her that she toyed with the temptation of prolonging her convalescent, in order to enjoy his attentions. But on the doctor's next visit, she was told to get out of bed and put on her clothes.
1: We don't want any more invalids around here for Richard to There's nothing the matter with you.
2: Relieved, if somewhat indignant, Judith plunged into preparations for her party, which she now set forward to January, only to find a religious revival, usurping the calendar for that month. Nothing daunted, she set her date for the first week in February and laid her plans before Richard as a subtle means of persuading him that they were his own ideas. Unfortunately, he was inclined to be difficult. He had agreed heartedly enough that they should give a party, but he failed to grasp its significance. It was not a family affair, she delicately pointed out, Neither the Turners nor the Mitchells were to be included. It was a little gathering of congenial spirits, and the only entertainment, besides a light refreshment, was to be the free flow of intellectual conversation. Richard seemed more interested in the fact that the party gave him an excuse to buy Thorne a new dress. With remarkable patience and self-restraint, Judith explained that Thorn would not need a new dress because she was not going to appear. They argued this point exhaustively.
3: This is an adult party. None of the children will be in evidence.
4: That's all right for Ricky and Raji, but you said yourself that Thorn was growing up.
3: I said she was suffering from growing pains. There's a difference.
4: Richard growled. She's read a damn sight more than young Will.
2: By Judith's express invitation, Will Tomlinson was to be among those present. Miss Anne put an end to the argument by agreeing with Judith that Thorne was too young for a party of this sort. She would take all of the children up to her room on the evening in question. Richard yielded on one condition, that Thorne should be given a birthday party in May. Is her birthday in May? He didn't know if it was or not, but May was a beautiful month for a party. His mother acquiesced, and Judith said it was a charming idea. They would give a party for all of the children in May. After that, things went more smoothly. Invitations were so choice and few that they were accepted enthusiastically. An author of National Repute chanced to be visiting old friends in Woodridge, and Judith captured him as a lion of the hour. In addition, there was the editor of the Sentinel, an oldish bachelor with a university degree, and a spinster sister. There were the Barclays, Ellen included on her husband's account, Lucius Goff, and a lady friend from Terre Haute. Albert Carpenter, President Incumbent at Timberley School, and a few more of the Intelligentesia. Doc Baird was not invited, but Richard did not learn of this until it was too late to do anything about it. The party was doomed from the onset. As an initial embarrassment, everyone inquired for the absent Tomlinson's and seemed unable to grasp the idea that neither illness nor calamity was responsible for their non-appearance. Judith realized that she had committed an error in excluding the family. But the major disaster was beyond her control. She had started in her invitations that the gathering was complimentary to the visiting man of letters, Mr. Fairchild, and had indicated that literature was to be the subject of the evening's discussion. But, unfortunately, the six weeks revival had just closed in a blaze of excitement with the flaming oratory of the evangelist focused on the burning issue. Is there a personal devil? And those who had heard him were still smoking. Literature paled beside the incendiary topic of devils, both personal and general. Opinions ranged from the avowed skepticism of the centennial editor, who believed nothing he could not feel, taste, or smell, to the unshakable conviction of Mrs. Barclay, who declared the devil a part of her religion and accepted him complete with horns, hoofs, and tail. Discussion was livelier than anything Judith had dared hope for, but alas, on the wrong subject. Even Richard astonished her by affirming his belief in an incarnate spirit of evil.
4: How else can you explain the brutality of war, or the lust for power, or selfishness, greed, or murder? Either there's a
2: devil in the world, or there's one in every human breast, he demanded. Once before she had heard him talk like this, it was on the occasion of their first meeting— when he had argued so earnestly over the use of the supernatural in Macbeth. From devils, it was a simple and natural progression to ghosts. In vain, did Judith bring forth a copy of Mr. Fairchild's latest book as a hint that literacy talk was to have been the order of the evening? The author himself waved her aside as though the book had been written by someone else. He had he confessed, a keen interest in things metaphysical. Lucius Gough, emboldened by sympathy, promptly declared his belief in spiritual communication. The editor jeered at him. Mrs. Barclay warned him that, though the devil was orthodox, ghost and spirit wrappings were not. The argument grew so heated that even the elderberry wine which Richard brought in failed to cool it. In fact, the refreshment gave rise to fresh discussion for Mr. Fairchild, as though reminded of something by the homemade beverage, asserted that since his sojourn in this community, he had come into possession of some interesting data on the subject of poltergeists. Mrs. Barkley demanded to know what polter, what you may call them, might be. The author explained that poltergeists were spirits of the dead returned to earth to wreak mischief. He had heard about a case in this very county, he said. The centennial editor came down upon him with hallucinations, spectral illusions, and acute inebriation. But the writer stood his ground.
0: I have it on the best authority. There was a wedding a short while back at which the wearing apparel of the guests disappeared and was later found scattered at impossible
2: heights in the surrounding trees. He went on describing in detail the Tomlinson's share very, obviously unaware that he was talking to the people involved.
0: I understand that the bridegroom had given out that two distant cousins were playing a practical joke.
2: The author smiled significantly.
0: Naturally, he would prefer to believe that since his first wife had been dead but six months.
2: The silence was acutely uncomfortable, but the speaker took it for rapt attention on the part of his listeners and went innocently on.
0: Other queer things have happened in this house. Some photographs of the dead wife, which were locked in a strong chest within the house, were found in a shed some distance from the dwelling. Silver coins, also locked in the chest, were found between the pages of books.
2: Again, his hearers suffered extreme embarrassment. The story of the photographs and the coin had reached Woodridge by way of Jesse Moffat, and a number of those present had assisted in its circulation. The only person who seemed unembarrassed was Richard.
4: Who told you these stories, Mr. Fairchild? I've heard them from any number
0: of people. Did you learn the name of the family? If I did, it slipped my mind. I've a wretched memory for names, but I've talked with credible witnesses.
4: And it's the general belief that these pranks are cases of supernatural phenomena?
2: Richard was smiling now.
0: That's one theory. I prefer it the other advanced by local gossips. What is that? Some people have gone so far as to accuse a young girl in this house of witchcraft.
2: Richard's smile vanished.
4: I can assure you the wedding prank was a practical joke, to which the jokers have confessed. As for the displaced photographs and silver, I think your theory of the poltergeist is rather interesting.
2: John Barclay felt sorry for Judith. He guessed that the evening had not gone the way she had planned. She sat with her back to the light, resting her cheek on her hand, looking almost ill with fatigue and wretchedly pale. He sat down at the piano and launched into a medley of popular songs to dispel the embarrassment and gloom of the unfortunate discussion. He could not understand why Richard continued to pursue the unhappy theme with Mr. Fairchild. Every time the music diminuendoed, their voices could be heard in animated debate. Judith listened to John Barclay's music and wished he would play louder and drown the voices of the men. Her face was rigid with the effort of smiling. She was so stunned by the turn her party had taken that she was not even indignant. Tomorrow, after a night's sleep, if she was able to sleep, she would remember this talk and be able to weigh it, perhaps dismiss it. But just now she could feel nothing but fear. All this talk about ghosts was not as purposeless as it seemed. Richard was deliberately fostering it. He did not really believe that his dead wife's spirit was among them. Yet, he was announcing to all present that he preferred that theory to even the slightest suspicion of Thorne. Could this be a subtle reminder to Judith that he knew of her guilt in the matter of the photographs? that she must either confess or admit the possibility of Abigail's unquiet ghost? When at last she looked at Richard, she found his eyes fixed upon her with a curious expression which she could not fathom. When the party broke up, she went swiftly to her room as to a refuge. She was in bed when he came upstairs, the covers drawn over her eyes to shut out the light. It was he who undressed leisurely this night. He did not disturb her with talk, but he seemed in unusually good spirits. Walt softly as he moved about the room. When he had extinguished the light and climbed into bed, he unexpectedly gathered her into his arms. He was softly laughing. Richard! She was thankful for the darkness as she clung to him. She wanted to ask why he was so exuberant whence came this strange buoyancy which had restored him to her arms. And then she preferred not to know. When he was like this, nothing else mattered. She even forgot her nagging fear. But she remembered it in the morning when, waking tardily, she found him still lightsome and inclined to conversation.
4: I'm glad you gave that party, Judith. It was quite a success. We must have that fellow Fairchild out again.
2: Heartened by daylight, she took the situation firmly in hand. People like that are amusing, but you should be
3: careful, Richard, how you endorse his fantastic ideas. Mr. Fairchild is a writer, and writers are expected to be a little eccentric. But you are a solid citizen, a man of some importance in your community. You don't want to be quoted as saying you believe the ghost of your dead wife is playing pranks in this house.
2: But I do. He was smiling, inscrutably innocent.
4: Hiding those photographs out in the shed, her own photographs, mind you, is exactly the sort of perverted jest Abigail would delight in.
2: It was seconds before Judith
4: could speak.
3: You don't believe any such thing, and it's too early in the morning to be funny.
4: I'm not being funny. You know we agreed at the time that only two people could have accomplished it by a natural means, you and Thorn. Of course, it was neither of you, so that must have been accomplished by supernatural means.
2: He had taken his stand. Apparently nothing could shake him from it. I'd advise you not to let your mother hear you voice such an opinion, said Judith and sprang quickly out of bed before he could discover her trembling. This was the beginning of a subtle change in their relationship. It was also the beginning of a change in the house at Timberley, which in time was felt by all its inmates. At first it was felt by none but Judith, who queerly shrank from giving utterance to her forebodings. But when the talk at her party was reported, as it inevitably was, by young Will, Judith was astonished to discover that Richard's stand did not shock anyone, not even his mother. In this sternly orthodox household, she sensed a feeling which she could not have defined, but with which she was to grow more and more familiar. It spread from Millie's kitchen to the big room upstairs, which the children shared with Miss Anne, that this feeling was unacknowledged, tactically ignored, made it the more manifest. Came early that year. By the first of April, the lilacs were a green mist. Redbirds whistled from the cedar trees. Catbirds called from the woods. Coming home from school, the children found violets and snowdrops blooming along their path. On the banks of Little Raccoon, the red bud floated like a pillar of fire. The young Tomlinsons, loitering one evening, saw A covered wagon crossed the bridge and whooped joyously, for this was a sure sign of approaching summer. When they reached home, they found, as anticipated, that the wagon had turned in at Timberley, and its occupants, two brothers from Ohio named Cochran, were spending the night. This meant there would be tales of adventure and misadventure around the evening fire. Thorne, setting the table for supper, sang, Oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. Oh,
0: Susanna, oh, don't you cry for me. I come from Pennsylvania, a banjo on my knee.
2: The sight of a covered wagon wakened nostalgic yearnings, sometimes for the vagabond existence of the wayfarers. It was during a lull in her crooning that she became aware of voices in the hall outside the dining room door.
3: I suggest, Richard, that we dispense with prayers tonight, since there are strangers among us.
4: Why should we? We're not dispensing with supper.
3: Don't be facetious, dear.
4: I didn't mean to be. Hospitality is offering your home to your guest, isn't it?
3: For all you know, these Cochrans may not be Protestants.
4: They are no less welcome to join us if they care to. If they don't, they can retire.
3: All of which is most embarrassing.
4: No more than a preference for white meat instead of dark.
2: His... Imperturbable calm seemed to irritate his companion, for her voice rose impatiently.
3: Family worship is an outmodded custom. It belongs to the days of Puritanism. I'm trying to make of Timberley a cultured home, and this nightly exhibition of religion makes it seem like a backwoods farmhouse.
4: What is it except a farmhouse?
3: It's not a backwoods cabin at any rate, though it might be from some of its customs.
4: Are you suggesting that prayers be discontinued permanently?
3: Not immediately, of course, on your mother's account, but I do favor a gradual tapering off. That's why I suggest that you admit them this evening, when you've a very good excuse, then later drop to once or twice a week, and eventually stop altogether. How does that strike you?
4: It strikes me as curious that you never objected to prayers before we were married.
3: I was a boarder in the house then. I had no voice in its management. But now I'm its mistress. I think my wishes should be respected.
2: There was no reply. The dining room door was flung open and Judith came in with high color and a look of exasperation. She demanded of Thorne. What are you doing here? And without waiting for the obvious answer, took the silver from her hands and told her to go to the kitchen and help Millie. With only a swift glance at Richard, who had followed his wife into the room, Thorn obeyed. She could not tell from his remote expression whether Judith had won her point or not, but the possibility depressed her. Her knowledge of God, once confined to Pete McGraw's profanity, was now all mixed up with her feelings for her friend. That he could yield a principle to please his wife troubled her. When bedtime came, two people waited with sharp anxiety for Richard's decision in the matter. When he picked up the Bible as usual, inviting his transient guests to join in the family ritual if they so desired, excusing them if they did not, the Cochran brothers chose to remain. Judith caught a look from Thorn, which, to her incensed imagination, seemed to sparkle with triumph. Judith's face turned livid with anger. Her humiliation was twofold because Thorne had witnessed her defeat. She returned the girl's bright glance with a fixed hard stare that caused Thorne to retire to a remote corner and sit down in the shadow of the big clock. As Judith watched Richard turning the leaves of the Bible, looking for some favorite passage, she heard the clock begin to strike. It was the strangest thing to Judith that no one seemed to react to the stroke of the clock. Richard looked up as did everyone, but they looked at Judith, who had given a queer gasp. She muttered, The clock! And Richard glanced at the clock on the mantel, which pointed to twenty minutes of nine. The hands of the big clock stood at half past one. He nodded.
4: Yes, we're late.
2: And went on turning the pages of the Bible. The clock struck again. The tone of the gong was deep and ominous. It fell chillingly on the ear like some dread warning. It was not until the third stroke that startled looks began to appear in the fireside circle as faces turned towards Judith, who had made a strangling sound and put her hand to her throat. Anne Tomlinson hushed a whimpering child, but Richard seemed quite unmoved. He began to read, choosing the first line his eye fell upon, surely, or he never would have read that particular passage.
4: Then Saul said unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her, and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor.
2: He paused, frowning as though that was not what he had intended to read. But when he started to change his selection, Judith's voice arrested him.
3: Go on, Richard. This is an appropriate time to read the story of a witch.
2: He looked about the room as though in search of someone. The candlelight did not penetrate the corner where Thorn sat in the shadow of the clock. Richard resumed his reading. He read the whole story of Sal consulting the witch of Endor and bringing the ghost of Samuel up from the grave to answer his questions. As long as the reading continued, Judith counted the strokes of the clock. <laughs> ¶¶ Verse after verse Richard read From the forecast of Sal's death at the hands of his enemies to the panic of the poor frightened rich woman who had killed her faded calf for the king when she learned with whom she had been trafficking. To the end of the chapter Richard read apparently oblivious of the striking clock When his voice ceased the clock stopped Judith had counted one hundred and forty-four strokes. There was a moment of silence before the summons to prayer. A leaping flame in the fire threw a rosy shadow across the face of the clock, and Judith saw that the hands, which had been fixed at half-past one, now pointed to a quarter of three. Abigail had died at a quarter of three. When the others knelt in the nightly petition, Judith did not join them. Her eyes searched the room for Thorn. As the concerted murmur of, our Father, which art in heaven, rose about her. She strained her ear for a clear young voice she would have recognized in any choral chant. She did not hear it. Her pale face was glowing with elation when the others rose from their knees.
3: This is a trick I had nothing to do with, she thought. This time we've caught Thorn
2: red-handed. There was no comment on the clock's behavior. As long as the strangers were present... But when they had shown to a room upstairs, Judith demanded that Richard examine the erratic timepiece. He inquired mildly why he should examine a clock at this time of night. To see who's inside it? said Judith. Amid a pregnant pause, with the entire household looking at her most strangely, she repeated her demand that Richard explore the interior of the clock. There's no one inside it, said Richard. There couldn't be. Judith pointed to a little door in the side of the cabinet, large enough to permit a very small person or child to conceal himself in the clock. Where were the children during the Bible reading? She asked. Miss N answered for her grandsons. They had sat throughout the evening where they were at this moment, on the hearth rug. People were looking at Judith very curiously now. Where was Thorn? She asked sharply. A husky voice answered, "'Here!' And Thorn rose up from a cushion in the corner, so nearly invisible in her grey dress that she seemed a part of the shadows. "'You were inside the clock, weren't you, Thorn?' said Judith. Thorn said, "'No!' and looked surprised. Richard said, "'Of course she wasn't in the clock,' as though the idea
4: were absurd. "'She never left that stool. I saw her there all evening.'
2: He couldn't have seen her. Judith knew he couldn't have seen Thorne from where he was sitting. Something tightened in her throat. Anger for her husband's partisanship and a desperate need to prove Thorne guilty. She felt that she could not bear it if the girl were cleared of this mischief. The mere thought filled her with uncontrollable nervous excitement. She was conscious of intense cold. The temperature of the room seemed to have dropped several degrees. Shadows closed around her like a smothering fog. She had the strangest difficulty in breathing. When she looked about the room, she found that she and Richard were alone. He was standing beside her, a glass of water in his hand, and she was tugging at the band of ribbon around her throat. She asked where everyone was. He told her his mother had taken the children upstairs, the others had retired. She thought, Here, here. I
3: can't have anything like this happening. What made me faint? He asked.
4: Feel all right now?
2: She answered. Certainly. As though the question were irrelevant. But she noted that she was sitting on the couch, she had been standing when that queerness seized her. There's a reasonable explanation for all this, Richard. She resumed the argument as though there had been no interruption.
3: The sound we heard did not come from this room. Somewhere else in the house, a clock was striking.
4: I don't know what you're talking about, Judith. There's not a clock in this house that strikes.
3: I know that. That's why I say someone was hiding in the cabinet making the clock strike.
2: You mean that clock? Richard turned to look at the tall clock in the shadowy corner. That clock couldn't be made to strike. Half its works are
4: missing. It has no bell.
3: But it did strike. It struck one hundred and forty-four times, I counted, and the hands moved from half past one
2: to quarter of three. He picked up a candle and went over to the clock and held the taper so that the light fell across its face. The hands rested where they had rested for years, at half past one. He said quietly,
4: The clock didn't strike, Judith. It couldn't have struck without my hearing it.
3: Judith
2: gasped.
3: You didn't hear it? He shook his head. But you must have heard it. Everyone
2: else did. No. His eyes rested on her, half curiously, half solicitously.
4: No one heard anything. When you fainted, Mother asked what there was about the clock to alarm you.
2: He's lying, thought Judith, and pushed back the creeping horror that assailed her. They were all lying to protect that girl. She must believe this, even though it was the last step in the progress of her defeat. She was more conscious at the moment of defeat than of fear, because she saw with terrible prescience that there would be no end to eerie mischief in this house and Richard would defend Thorne to the extent of denying what his ears had heard and his eyes had seen. That the alternative to Thorne's guilt was one which filled his wife with horror apparently had no weight with him. The calm finality of his allegiance was devastating. She heard his voice remotely.
4: Come upstairs, Judith. You'll feel all right after a good night's sleep.
2: Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show
1: you're listening to bottom shelf recording talk sounds boring oh my yes with your hosts james seabrook editing mixing and additional voices by james seabrook at two bodies of water productions follow our hosts on twitter at two bodies of water got that mic in a comfortable spot yet i'm still working on it hello my name is kyle marshall i'm from calgary alberta canada i'm a couple of voices in this production I'm also the owner of Media Lab, where you can find out more information at medialabyyc.com, where we help you make the podcasts of your dreams. I also host the podcast Creative Block, which talks to artists and creative entrepreneurs. As well, I host the podcast Putting It Together, about the work of Steven Sondheim, and I co-host Kyle and Dave Versus the Machine, where each season we talk about the films of one specific year.
3: Hi. My name is Kylie and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com and on my Instagram at kmorgan with two A's. Hello, my name is London Moss, and I was on my mum's podcast, Valerie's Variety
0: Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF. Not known, as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye.
4: Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, in the United States. And I am the voice of Richard
0: Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast, Have Not Seen This. Hi, my name is Garrett Odel from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me where I co-host with my friend Frankie on the ever-trending story podcast.
2: Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show.
4: She used to sleep outdoors in the hammock because she couldn't stand it up here.
2: Judith asked, oddly, wasn't she afraid?
4: What of?
3: I see. It came through the east window. I heard the crash of
2: glass.
4: That window is open. I got up in the night and pried the nails loose and raised it.
2: Particularly young Will. Will. The bricks always seemed to come when Thorne was out of the house. In vain did Richard caution her to stay within doors. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhart is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her errors and contacts however, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.